Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I'm Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, uh, and uh, Narnie and I are here in the Lore Hall in Landreval, which is my home server. So, good to be back on Landreval this evening. Um, okay, so tonight we are going to begin Chapter 7 uh, of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Now, by the way, well, chapter 7 of the Fellowship of the Ring, in our the progress of our Exploring the Lord of the Rings, if the uh, uh, our uh, journey through the book can be called anything so rash as progress. Um, so, here's... Actually, I wanted to start, though, with a sort of a general question. I kind of want to sort of throw this out there to people. One thing that you may notice with the pace of our going through the book having... Uh, uh, slowed as much as it has, and I'm delighted by this, um, and have no plans to increase the pace uh, of our journey through the book here. Um, if you kind of, those of you who are familiar with the game world, you kind of do the math, you will realize we're going to run out of areas of the map to explore long before we get through the book. So uh, I'm, I'm going to, my plan is to keep doing, you know, the same kind of guided tours I love thinking through you know the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings online world as a sort of a, a sub-creative project, and thinking about its relationship to Tolkien's book. There's a lot to talk about there, and a lot, obviously, that we haven't covered yet. So, it's not that we're in any imminent danger of running out of material there, but it's going to happen sooner or later. And I want to kind of mix it up too. So, I just wanted to sort of throw this out there and see, because uh, I know that many of you who know the game world really well, as well as uh, knowing the books quite well. And I just thought it might be interesting uh, to field ideas from you guys and see what you what sort of suggestions you had and what you thought might be fun uh, to do together uh, in our field trips. If we can kind of we might want to sort of mix in some other things. Um, there are lots of things that we could do. Are there really interesting um, instances or quest lines that you think that you would really like to to hear us discuss uh, in the context of our exploration of the book here? Um, are there parts of the book that we could interestingly sort of reenact in the game uh, in some ways. I think that would be really fun. We could do that. Um, other suggestions or ideas that you have about things that we could do as part of our in-game uh, field trip experience at the end of the session, um, you know, outside of one of those categories of things. Um, so I just wanted to kind of throw this out there to you creative people uh, and see uh, if there are some other ways in which we could kind of diversify our field trip time. I think that would be really fun. So anything you'd like to hear me talk about, anything you'd like to do together, um, that would be that would be really cool. So just wanted to just wanted to kind of mention that I would uh, encourage you to post on our discussion board about this. Feel free to post some things on the in the questions for Narnian section, especially. Then I'll I'll be guaranteed to see them. Um, that would be uh, that would be fine. So any any ideas that you have again, lotro.mythgard.org is the uh, is the address for that. So. All right. Festivals, says Holligro. Well, Holligro, I don't know that much. I've Festivals, I've not done much. And I've done the Yule Festival several times. And I think it's still pretty much the only festival I've ever done. So that's certainly something else that we could do uh, if you're interested in doing festivals. Um uh, like the, I guess the summer thing is still going, a farmer's fair or something like that. I don't Again, I don't even do it. Like, I don't even know. So, um, uh, that's, uh, uh, so open to, certainly open to suggestions. If that's something you guys would like to do, we could totally do that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Anyway, 
as I said, post think about it. Post if you have any ideas, post suggestions. Um, again, it's for me. This is just really fun to be able to explore the world, uh, think it through, um, and uh, interact with it in fun ways together. I think that's uh, that's part of the fun of the whole thing. So, all right. But with that in mind, uh, let us go ahead and uh, uh, jump back into the text here. So tonight, we're actually beginning chapter 7. And uh, talking about identity and recognition is the theme of the class tonight. Um, Because, of course, we not not only meet Goldberry, we've already met Tom, kind of, we're going to meet Goldberry and find out and th- their recognition of her uh, and sort of questioning of her identity is interesting. The Hobbit's own identity and their inter- introductions to Goldberry are also interesting. And then, of course, we're going to get to, I hope, uh, my goal is to get to Goldberry and Frodo's conversation about Tom Bombadil's identity. And if we are truly reckless uh, in our career through these few pages here tonight, um, I'd also even like to look at some of Tolkien's own discussion of that passage where Frodo and Goldberry are talking to, 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 to take a, uh, a brief sidebar into Tolkien's own reading of his book uh, on that particular point. So that's my goal for tonight. We'll see if we can get as far as that. Um, but uh, first, one other... Qu- there are several really interesting and quite long um, posts on the Questions for Narnian section. Some of them didn't fit exactly with what we were uh, looking at today, and I may come back to some of them later on. Uh, some others that I would just sort of commend to you. Matt, I was really interested in your comparison with uh, with Haute Desert, the... Um, uh, the fortress, uh, you know, the the castle of uh, uh, Sir Berthelac in the in the the Green Knight, uh, Sir Gowan in the Green Knight. Uh, that's a parallel map that I don't think I would have thought of myself, um, but it's a really interesting one. I, I'm especially convinced by the description of how suddenly it appears in the middle of a very hostile wilderness, right? Uh, and at a moment when. You know, Sir Gowan isn't exactly running down the path crying help, 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 but he kind of is, right? I mean, he's doing it, he's kneeling in prayer instead of running down the path, but he is calling out for help, having no idea where possibly to find what he's looking for, and then uh, a thing which isn't a thing that he's looking for exactly appears right in front of him, right? Which is the castle. Um, at least he doesn't think it's what he's looking for, right? He's looking for the Green Chapel, and it's not the Green Chapel. Um but of course, it's close enough as it turns out. Um, anyway, so I, 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 you know, I do think that there are some interesting, there are some interesting parallels there. I mean, I'm not uh, wholly satisfied by the by the par- well. I'm trying to figure out how to say this, uh, you know, Matt, you had talked about your your the your analysis being being half-baked, so are my reactions to it. But um, one of the things that I find in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, when Sir Gowan sort of crosses crosses that barrier, right, from the, the wilderness where there are monsters and giants and things, uh, and into the civilized confines, right, of, uh, of uh, Sir Bursalak's castle, um, he's... 
it's very much a like from the wild to civilization thing, and it's uh, it's the, there's great merriment in that house. I mean, merriment is one of the primary things that dominates it. It's the merriment uh, of uh, Sir Bersalak himself and his household in general. They're just like constantly feasting and drinking and playing games, right? Uh, parlor games and stuff like toss the hat on the spear and things like that, right? So, uh, I mean, that that and the laughter. Oh my goodness, he's laughing constantly, right? So, the, I mean, to me, that's the strongest parallel with Tom Bombadil himself um, is the emphasis on merriment, and yet there seems to be something that that I don't know, like the high culture element. Of Sir Bersalak's court, like it's a very formal court, right? Where they and Sir Gowan is accepted in as a paragon of, of, uh, of, the, of knightly, not knightly virtues, but a paragon of of civilized behavior, right? Um, uh, that he can demonstrate for them how uh, polite and cultured people carry on, and just the whole flavor of that, of course, very different from Tom and from his household. Um, so that's where the, the peril really breaks down. But as always, and this is something I would say in general, this is not just about Matt's argument about Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, um, but in general, whenever people, and the, and a lot of the questions that you guys have often, I mean, I very frequently get questions like this about source materials, right? What kind of, you know, is, is Tolkien working with, is this a, sort of an established myth or story that he's working into his story? You know, all this... For me, the th- and I've been saying this since like literally my first podcast episode ever ten years ago, um, and that is like the thing when you're doing source criticism, when you're thinking about Tolkien's relationship with his sources, the question you always always must ask is so what? Okay, so there's a connection. If you can establish a connection, that's great. But that's not the end of the work. That's the beginning of the work, right? So what? Like, so what's interesting about that? What does that show us? What do we learn about that? Do we know now more about the story, having made that connection? Um, uh, you know, merely establishing a connection to sources doesn't really do much for me in itself. I mean, it's kind of a point of I mean unless it's unless it's simply a point of curiosity like what thing might have inspired Tolkien's uh coming up with this idea but I've never been very moved by that kind of curiosity certainly never satisfied by that kind of curiosity um in particular since I find that it seems to me that the path that that branch of curiosity tends to lead people down is a path which not only is is sort of stopping answering the so what question and, and just sort of making connections and leaving them there, not rather than using those connections as material to help you do a reading of the text and understand the story better, but, um, but in addition to the, the tendency to assume that Tolkien can't just make stuff up, right? And this is, I see this all the time when I'm reading source criticism stuff where people are are, are basically sort of saying like, okay, it's a given, he's got to get this stuff from somewhere. So the only question is, where is he getting it, right? Uh, and so trying to trying to find the, the roots and the origins of all of these elements in Tolkien's uh, book, not only as if the, those th- that in itself answers an important question, which, as I said, by itself, I don't think it does answer the question, um, but, but in addition to that, as if it's a question that must be answered, like we must ferret out the roots of all of these things and the sources of all these things. And sometimes I just want to be like, dude, like, maybe he just made it up, right? I mean, like, he, he, he does that. Like, he can, there doesn't have to be a source for everything. There doesn't have to be an analog for everything. Um, 
anyway, so, and again, I'm not saying all source criticism does that, but it's, it's kind of a tendency, uh, you know, once you kind of start doing that, you know, once you start um, um, asking that question, where does this come from? What is he bringing in? What source material is he working for? Once you start asking that question, it seems to be sort of a natural kind of gravitational pull of that kind of inquiry. Um, anyway, digressing into very general theoretical uh, uh, issues now, but um, so back to Tom Bombadil. How does this help us to understand Tom Bombadil better? Um, what I think for me, um, you know, so Matt, coming back to your observations about Sir Garen and the Green Knight, and again, I didn't, I couldn't fit on a slide um, uh, a bit of your uh, uh, of your uh, really interesting analysis, so I didn't. Um, coming back to that parallel with Sir Garen and the Green Knight, then where I would went, then want to take it is to say, well, okay, so again, so how does this how does this help? And for me, one of the things that I find most illuminating there um, is to look at. Sir Gawain's reaction as an analog to Frodo's reaction, like to the Hobbit's reaction, upon both upon meeting Tom Bombadil and upon coming to his house. Um, and because who Tom Bombadil is and who, you know, Sir Bursalak the Green Knight ends up being is very different and their agendas are very different and uh, they, they have some similarities, but... Um, but to me, the, the, the parallel that's closer and sort of more compelling in, the, in a way that leads me to feel like I'm gonna, I'm, it could help me to really understand the story better is to look at Sir Gawain. Sir Gawain before he finds the castle, Sir Gawain's reaction to finding the council, the, ca- the council, the castle, and uh, Sir Gawain's like, adjustment to being in the castle, right? And sort of like what's expected of him and what ends up happening. Those kinds of things are, are, are to me, um, a little bit, uh, I think sort of more illuminating and helping us to understand what might be sort of the framework, um, uh, to sort of inform the framework for Frodo and the Hobbits. Anyway, that's, that, that was my, my, I was going to say quick reaction. I guess that wasn't so quick, but anyway, um, uh, Bruce had a question which does fit on a slide, uh, so I want to read that one. Uh, and this is sort of an overlap. He's been uh, following the Treason of Isengard uh, class, on, which happens on Wednesday nights at the same time as this one. Uh, and he was pointing out when we were discussing Errantry, the Errantry poem that Tolkien wrote, the one which eventually evolves into uh, Arendelle was a Mariner, Bilbo's poem in Rivendell. We spent two whole weeks and four hours talking about uh, the different versions of that poem and how it came from the really weird uh, but really fun, whimsical uh, little diminutive fairy who marries, uh, who who kills spiders, fights dragonflies, and marries a butterfly. Um into Arendelle was a mariner, right, uh, in Rivendell. It's a fascinating, fascinating study. Uh, one of my favorite things. Anyway, so he says, I noticed the lines from version four of the poem, then slowly he on pillow cool let fall his head, and fast asleep he passed the weeping willow pool. And in this class, we're looking at old man Willow lulling the hobbits to sleep. The connection struck me. Is there some link between willows and sleep? Certainly I could imagine how the sound of the gently rustling branches could be very soothing as you take a nap in the shade of one on a summer's afternoon, but I was wondering if the medieval world had some more explicit connection that Tolkien was drawing on, and Bruce goes on to mention the uh, the connection with uh, folk medicine and how, you know, the bark of the willow tree um, is something that, uh, you know, is has 
medicinal value and analgesic value specifically. But so is that is that a, a possible connection? Yeah. Well, so Bruce, here's my my approach to this. Right? Is first first forget about the outside stuff. First, make sure that you see what's going on within Tolkien's own works. Right? First, build the story from within Tolkien's stories. Then compare outside, right? Um, and so what Bruce is pointing out here is a really interesting connection, right? We have two points of connection. Do we find others? Um, do we have other reasons to sort of see willow trees associated with sleep and lassitude, right, in Tolkien's work? And the answer is, yeah, actually we do. There's a third data point um, on that, um, uh, for that, and that's the, the willow area there's the, the 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 land of willows um do you remember treebeard's other poem right so he sings the the ant and the ant wife poem but i'm not talking about that one i'm talking about the earlier one uh that he sings uh in the willow meads of tasaranen i walked in the spring that one right um the willow meads of tasaranen the, the the willow meads that he refers to in the opening line of that poem is a region in Beleriand from the Silmarillion tradition, specifically in South Beleriand, down in the southern reaches of the River Sirion, down closer to the sea. Um, Lowlands with uh, marshes and pools and the river and the River Delta running through it. Um, So that land of willows barely comes into the published Silmarillion. I mean, you, there's, there's, I think, one, or there's, like, it's referred to in the, the, the Of Beleriand and Its Realms chapter, which everyone reads very scrupulously, everyone's favorite chapter. Um, but, uh, but it doesn't come into the stories very much. It doesn't come into the action very much. In the earlier versions of the Silmarillion, it featured much more heavily. It was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a much more central part of the story. And in particular, the story that featured the Land of Willows uh, most centrally was the story of Tuor and the fall of Gondolin. Um, you remember in the, if you remember the story of Tuor and the published Silmarillion, he kind of lingers. Um, remember this that moment near the beginning of the story when the swans fly overhead because he's been kind of hanging out. Right, but he's hanging out up in the north before he gets to Vinyamar, where he has his encounter with Olmo, and the swans fly overhead, and he's like, "Oh, I've lingered here too long. I, I better go follow the swans." And so he follows the swans down to the sea, finds Vinyamar, and that's when he has his dramatic encounter with Olmo, rising up out of the st- you know the storm-tossed surf, right? And he has that very uh, intimidating confrontation with the god of the sea, uh, who gives him his task. Now, originally. That whole sequence, the whole sequence I just described, happens in the Land of Willows. So he has been traveling, and he's way down in the south of Beleriand, and he's hanging out in the land, and it's in the Land of Willows that he's delaying, right? That he's lingering down there in the Land of Willows, just kind of chilling and hanging out down in the Land of Willows. And it's there that Olmo rises out of the water, this time not dramatic storm-tossed uh, surf, but just like the cool, placid water is like the Withywindle, Right. And he rises out of the water and is like, dude, you know, get on, get get off your butt and go up to Gondolin and do your thing. Um, so the Land of Willows, it's not described as like having a, you know, some kind of preternatural effect on him. There's no sense that like some spell has been cast upon him to induce lassitude of some kind. But it is a place where he kind of loses sight of himself. It doesn't, he, just, he sort of doesn't, 
doesn't physically fall asleep, but he kind of, I don't know, morally falls asleep, right? He, he, he ends up just kind of chilling and hanging out kind of aimlessly down in the land of willows. So we do have this association of willow trees with uh, slumber, lassitude, laziness. Uh, in, and we do, so we have three data points connecting that, those concepts uh, in, with Tolkien and willows. So we have a trend there, right? So what does it mean? Is he working with a, a, a tradition? Not really one that I'm familiar with. The folktale, uh, sort of fairy tale, um, fairy tale, folk legend, um, stuff that features willow trees, tends to be not like that, actually. It tends to be a good deal more active. Um, willow trees, you have to be careful about willow trees, but the reason you have, you have to be careful about willow trees uh, in traditional fairy tales and folklore and stuff is that they're likely to come after you. Like, willow trees are, are known to walk around, um, specifically to, like, sneak up behind you and get you. So, um, you know, they, 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 they tend to be... So the idea of Old Man Willow, like the idea of a malevolent willow tree which is out to murder you, is, like, that's based upon... I mean, there is basis for that in traditional folklore. That doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, but having the willow tree be stationary at the center of this sort of web, that's not common, actually. And I don't know of i mean i the goodness knows i'm i'm no master of this uh of you know folklore and uh and fairy tale tradition if anyone knows of any feel free to let me know it but uh, i don't know of any traditional connection in folklore uh between willows and drowsiness like this and in the you know the the induction of sleep uh in this way um so uh so that seems to be a, it seems to be a thing that Tolkien is definitely doing with Willows. B, I don't see necessarily uh, a, a, a cognate for that, in, you know, or a source for that in fairy tale tradition. So uh, that seems to be a thing Tolkien's making up there, as far as I can, as far as I can see. All right. Um, good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, Aragorn, yeah, exactly. Uh, Nantathrin is the other name for it, yeah. Um, uh, Tessaranam, I think, is the uh, Quenya version, and Nantathrin is the Sindarin version. Um, I, I believe that's the difference there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ah, Jonathan Castles has found a, a correlation between willow trees and whisperings to woo thee to thy sleep in uh, in Virgil. Wow, is that in... Uh, where Where is that, Jonathan? Is that, uh, is that, in, is, is that in the Aeneid? Oh, the Eclogues. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Virgil's Eclogues. Okay. It's willow buds, a feast for Hibla's bees, shall with soft whisperings woo thee to thy sleep. There you go. Okay, well, Virgil's Eclogues, likely something Tolkien would have translated. Uh, I mean, when he was in school, likely something he would have translated. Um, Virgil's Eclogues are pretty standard stuff uh, for, you know, boys who are learning their Latin verses. Um, so, quite likely he would have come by that verse. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, did he ever translate it into Elvish? JJ asked. Not that I know. Um, 
Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Ardent Crayon, whose Twitter handle I really like. It is it is what treeist you say to assume that all trees are are evil because of the actions of one of one tree, right? But association with sleep and drowsiness doesn't necessarily mean evil, right? I mean, it could be quite a benevolent gift, even if the willow trees in Errantry seem to be perhaps unwitting accomplices to the abduction of a mortal, right? The uh, the 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 overall plot, by the way, of these lines that Bruce quoted here is we've got the mortal dude in a boat, right, floating down the river, and he falls asleep, and then while he's asleep, his boat is transported, a wind comes up, and his boat is transported beyond the moon, and he wakes up in ferry, uh, in fact, on the shores of Valinor, um, which is uncomfortable, and ends up, you know, he a mighty doom is laid on him, which kind of sounds like a good thing until it's not. So, um, you know, the willow trees... I mean, his sleep plays a role in that, uh, but again, it's clearly not, it's not like it's an, it's an old man Willow situation. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oakwig says he probably wrote it in Anglo-Saxon first and then translated it uh, to English. Um, uh, wait, not this poem, but there are some poems, I think, that he does, he does do that. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, get to, let's get to chapter seven here. Okay. Ah, Jonathan is seeing more relevance in that whole section of the Eclogues. Jonathan, it'd be interesting to hear more about this. This sounds like a, this is a, this is starting to sound like a like a like an interesting conference paper. Maybe something that you could do at a I don't know where uh, where you're located in the country. Um, but this would be a great little paper, a great little sort of discussion point and conversation for you know one of our uh, regional uh, conferences. Oh, you're in a different country. Well, you know, we'll we'll get there too. Um, Anyway, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, all right, um, we're starting. We're starting chapter seven. Okay. The four hobbits stepped over the wide stone threshold and stood still, blinking. Can I just say I love the fact that the chapter opens with them stepping across the threshold, right? Um, uh, that's good for a beginning, right? Um, I love the 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 the, the literal correlation of uh, um, the beginnings there. They were in a long, low room, filled with the light of lamps swinging from the beams of the roof, and on the table of dark, polished wood stood many candles, tall and yellow, burning brightly. In a chair, at the far side of the room, facing the outer door, sat a woman. Her long, yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag-lilies, set with the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. Okay. So this initial... Um, yeah, James, that is interesting. James Stevens says crossing the threshold going in is like the opposite of Bilbo's stepping out your front door, right? Yeah, uh, they're coming in from the path. It's like, it's like, a, um, it's like a harbor, Right uh, or a or a or a or a key right on the side of uh, uh, you know that you would moor your boat to, um, yeah. So first, the description of the room. Right, what do we get about the room? It's long and low, and so yes, I agree, Julia. It's a lot like a hobbit hole, and isn't that interesting? Right, um, the first alien house that the hobbits go to. They've just left. 
Crick Hollow, right, and crossed this boundary, and they've been in this wild place, uh, and the the first home they go to, which is not a hobbit home, looks exactly like a hobbit home, long and low, right? Um, at least the, the, the initial room is going to make them feel right at home. Um, and it makes me wonder, right? It makes me wonder how... How much has Tom Bombadil accommodated himself to his neighbors? Um, and the other thing that leads me to wonder that is Tom's name, right? Tom's name is already a way in which he seems to be accommodating himself to his neighbors. Tom Bombadil, is that's a very hobbity kind of name. I mean, not that there are any, like, oh, there's like a Bombadil clan among the hobbits, but Tom uh, is very much a local kind of name, both both in the Breland dialect and in the and in the Shire. Um and he uh you know he doesn't speak Elvish, he speaks the language of the Hobbits, right? There's no language barrier, uh, apart from his nonsense words, which might be a language barrier, but still. Um so his 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 name is a hobbity kind of name. His house is a hobbity kind of house. Um, so I think that that's interesting. Blue Wizard is suggesting maybe he influenced the building of the Shire. I can't imagine that. Uh, uh, that, that the, the Hobbits in the Shire are emulating the house of Tom Bombadil. I mean, of course, chronologically, obviously it's perfectly possible. Uh, but I can't, I can't see, I can't see enough Hobbits to have, uh, uh, to have known about him. And yes, exactly, Arden Cran, he does have many other names. Um, we know many other names that others call him, uh, you know, in other places and other times, so absolutely, he does. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yet, Julia, it is interesting that the Hobbits don't encounter anything in the house of Tom Bombadil that's unfamiliar. They may well, they might well do, Right. Well, I guess the only things that are unfamiliar, in a sense, are Tom and Goldberry themselves. But the settings are, it seems, um, very mm, pointedly, I want to say pointedly, pointedly familiar. Um, notice even we haven't got to this yet, but in a little bit, we're gonna, they're going to sit down on chairs and the chairs are described as low chairs, like easy for the hobbits to sit. They're not human-sized chairs, which would be tall for the hobbits. Um, everything seems to be accommodated to the hobbits. Um, yeah. Um, um, Tungol says the candles stand out somewhat. Yes, Tungol, I agree. They're certainly emphasized. They were in a long, low room filled with the light of lamps swinging from the beams of the roof, and on the table of dark, polished wood stood many candles, tall and yellow, burning brightly. Um, the number of the candles is emphasized, right? But the main thing I take from the candles, especially, of course, coming sentence after the description of the lamps, is the light, right? Also, and we're initially... Um, this is something that we're already sort of expecting, Right, because the light was the thing that was emphasized. They saw the light coming up the hill, right from the darkness of the of the woods. They could see the lights of Tom Bombadil's house, looking so friendly, peeping out at them. They've come across the threshold, and the first thing they do is blink, right, because they're suddenly in comparatively blinding light, um, and that's what's emphasized, right. And it's not magical light. It's not. It's 
natural, familiar light, right? Lamps swinging from the ceiling and lots of candles standing on the table, right? So in that sense, it's uh, um, northern... It's, it's normal light. It's not like magical light or radiance of some other kind. Um, and Arden Cran, good question. Have the hobbits at this point met any other big folk other than Gandalf? No. No. I don't think so. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that they've ever met a human being otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, Stephanie says it seems so inviting. It's as if their arrival was planned for. Yeah, it does. And see, this is, you know, we were t- when we talked about we talked last week about Tom Bombadil going on before them, right, and not staying to escort them to the house. Um, you know, we talked about like was he going to you know prepare his house for them, you know, to prepare the way for them. And I was saying, you know, I don't, I don't think he kind of needs to. And I, I still don't think he needs to. I think that, you know, he would have the power to, uh, you know, I mean, like, he, he's, like is he going to have to, like, go home and whip up some, you know, some, some extra dinner or something for them? Nah, I don't think, I don't think he's got to put a whole lot of effort into that. Um, indeed, it seems instead like he's accommodated his entire house to them, potentially. Um, is this what Tom Bombadil's house always looks like? Would it look different if somebody else came to visit? I wonder. It might look different. Who knows? I don't know. Um, and we can't prove it because we only see it once, right? Um, but it doesn't seem to me at all impossible that Tom could do that. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure. It's it's not quite as Hobbit-centric as all that. It doesn't... There's no evidence it has a, a round door or anything else that's, like, uniquely Hobbit-like, right? It's just non-imposing. It's just friendly. Um, And then there's Goldberry herself. On the one hand, this is... The thing that we get, I think, from her description right away is familiar, but also strange. On the one hand, there's no element in here that's bizarre, right? There's nothing weird about her. In fact, everything about her is they're all familiar elements, right? And look at all the similes we get. Her long hair rippled down her shoulders. Even there's, there's that's not a simile, it's a metaphor, right? The word ripple introduces a metaphor. Um, it's like water flowing down. Her hair is like a stream rippling down her shoulders. But then we get some similes. Her gown was green. How green was it? It was green as young reeds. So, uh, green as young reeds, shot with silver, like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag lilies, set with the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. So, her belt looks like flag lilies and forget-me-nots. Common flowers, right, that they would have seen before. Um, her, the color of her dress is immediately compared to something they've seen before, right, young reeds. Shot through, shot with silver like beads of dew. All the elements are familiar, um, but uh, yeah, she's very flowery, isn't she, Stephanie? I agree. Um, yeah, um, and so again, 
familiar stuff. Um, and of course, and all of these things obviously are things which are very naturally associated with what we would expect from Goldberry based on what we've seen so far, right? Um, she's the river woman's daughter, so of course her gown is going to be green like young reeds. She's not going to be her gown is going to be green like pine needles or something, right? Like pine needles on the slopes of of, uh, of the Lonely Mountain. No, of course it's going to be the color of of young reeds uh, growing down by the river. Um, and uh, and I love the uh, the beads of dew. Uh, and uh, and the flag lilies and the forget me nots again things that you would find uh, right there so familiar riverside components and yet she is regal there right she's yet there's this alien they've come inside right into this setting which is familiar and domestic, and yet it's also like they're outside, right? About her feet in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool, right? It looks like she's she's in her element, right? She is surrounded by wide bowls with the water lilies that Tom was bringing home floating in them, right? So the water lilies are preserved. It looks like she's... So she's... This is like home away from home, Right? Now, Julia asks, what exactly does River Woman's Daughter mean? I don't know. Um, In as much as the familial relationships, both husband-wife relationships and parent-child relationships among spirits, right, among the the Valar and the Maiar, um, it's... They seem to be kind of metaphorical in some ways, um, or sort of to function primarily metaphorically, right? Um, but um, yeah, so she's the daughter of the river. So she is not the river spirit. She is not the spirit of the withy window. She's the daughter of the spirit of the withy window, right? Um, and uh, so. What does she? Who is she? Like, what is her job? What kind of anim, What kind of creature is she? Right? Um, she is. She is a a local spirit. Uh, uh, one of the. She's a water. Obviously, she's associated with water. Right. So she's one of these. She's a water spirit um, who is associated with this river. One of the daughters of this river, presumably, or quite possibly, not the only daughter of that river, um, and. Uh, uh, yeah, we, so, a river nymph, essentially. Yeah, now nymph is a Greek word, right? Um, and as soon as we say nymph, it's hard not to be thinking in kind of Greek and Roman terms. That's not necessarily exactly what she is, but that's the idea, essentially. It's that 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 kind of thing. Um, interestingly, one thing I just wanted to share really briefly. Um, uncovered some really interesting evidence in the Treason of Isengard in last week's class um, that really suggests that Tolkien thought about his... Well, thought about the spirits, like the Maya this way, the Maya this way, and thought about um, uh, Middle-earth in general this way, as being sort of inhabited by local spirits uh, of this kind. Um, 
And the reference in the Treason of Isengard that we came to was when Legolas is talking about Holland, when he's traveling in Holland, and says the elves of this land were of a kind that were strange to us of the woodland, uh, of the wood, you know, us sylvan folk of the woodland realm. Um, that's what he says in the published Fellowship of the Ring. In the original draft, he said, the spirit of this area is one that is alien to us of the woodland folk. In other words, the dominant spirit of this land is a spirit of stone. And I'm a woodland elf, so I don't, you know, we, we're we not really kind of compatible. I don't really get him, and he doesn't get me. Um, if it were a woodland spirit, uh, then okay, you know, then, then, then I'd be able to probably, you know, hang with him more and talk with him more. Um, Legolas still talks to the stones. The stones talk to him and tell him stuff. Um, high they builded us, right? Uh, deep they did, but they are gone. They are gone. They sought the havens long ago. He gets that information from the rocks. And since rocks don't actually talk, it's probably spirits of the rock. You know, so like the, the you know, granite woman's daughters or whatever that, that Legolas was chatting with and from whom he got this information. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, um, it's, um, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that Tolkien imagined the, at least initially imagined, uh, certainly when he invented Goldberry and wrote almost all this, almost all of this, these passages that we're reading here, um, he had achieved the published version, uh, fairly early on while he was still in this stage. Um, Sarah Lagarde says it sounds a lot like the Finnish Kalevala spirits. Yes, I think that that is so. I think that that's, uh, that seems to be a thing that he really liked about the Kalevala, that he, I think it, it seems very likely that he imagined Middle-earth in the same, in the same kind of way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, children of Karathras, JJ asks. Yeah, well, Karathras is different. Um, he's a different spirit, I think, than the one that uh, lives in Holland, but a similar kind, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Julia asks, when was Goldberry invented? Early on, some of the Valar had children. Was Goldberry invented around that time, or was she later? I th- think... Oh. Trying to remember from the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion in The Lost Road. That's the volume of the history of Middle Earth that you can find. The 1937 Quinta in Did the Valar Still Have Children? I think so. I can't remember, Julia. But she is, I mean. Goldberry first appears, of course, in the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem back in the early 30s. Um, but that's very far removed. I mean, that's not at all... Uh, she was not conceived of as being a part of the Silmarillion world. Um, it's not until uh, he gets to later revisions of these passages in The Lord of the Rings that he's finally gotten there. Um uh, so that that's when, certainly when her character is first invented. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm not sure about that. But they certainly, whether or not they have, they still have children in Tolkien's mind at this point, um, they still definitely have people, right? Like, I, 
spirits associated with them. Spirits of the water associated with Almo, spirits of the of the stone uh, associated with Aule, spirits of the woodlands uh, and uh, you know the animals and birds associated with Yavana. Um, that's a that's a thing. That's a that's a standard thing. Um, and so, are they dryads? You know, or, or naiads? Yes and no. Right again, like that. Um, uh, Ah, okay, Mick, thanks. Just check the uh, Valar still have children in the 1937 Quinta. Okay, good. Thank you, Mick, for looking that up. I appreciate it. So yes, Julia, they do still have children. Um, so this idea of the immortal spirits um, uh, begetting children is still still exists in Tolkien's mind at this point. It's not until after the writing of the Lord of the Rings here that he that he changes his mind about that. So the River Woman's daughter fits in with, uh, with Manway and Varda having kids, for instance. Um, yep, yep. Um, okay. Was her name always Goldberry? Yep, it was. Her name was always Goldberry. Uh, and Blue Wizard and Julia are pointing out how interesting it is that her name doesn't, isn't watery, right? Um, like, why is it a fruit instead of, uh, uh, instead of something to do with the water? Uh, Tony thinks that Goldberry was a name given to her by Tom. I'd have to go back and reread the poem again. Um, he may be the first one that names her. I, don't, I mean, the one who says her name. I don't know that that means he's necessarily, you know, appointing that name for her at that moment. It's possible that it's Tom's name for her. Mary Yellow Berrio. Tongo, yes, her hair, you know, is gold. So... But but why Barry? You know that's the that's the real question there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, oh, that's interesting, Matt. Matt says um, in some Celtic stories you need something to keep a fairy woman from leaving. Um, a, uh, a Skelke's skin, for example. The water lilies feel like they are necessary for her to stay the winter rather than retreat to her pool uh, in the Withywindle for the winter. Quite possibly. Um, uh, Tom's suggestion later is the other way around. Instead of keeping her, he's keeping them, that is, the lilies, right? Um, that if they are brought in and kept near to Goldberry, they will stay. Um, and live throughout the winter instead of withering as they otherwise would. Um, but uh, but certainly, Matt, what we get here is this, you know, in these first two paragraphs, we get familiar hominess, right, of the inside of the house, and fairy-ness, right? Um, that, that sense of crossing a boundary, crossing a threshold into fairy, right, where okay, I've come into this house, and here's a a queen, right? She's throned uh, in the midst of a pool. So we have the, 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 the enchantment of, I've come inside, and there's a pool of water here, right? Um, so I'm, I'm inside, but the outside has come in, right? The, the, the nature from outside has come inside the house, so again, there's there's that sense of inversion, that sense of again, I'm, I've come into the, the 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 alien magical world of fairy and met a queen, right, who is enthroned in the midst of the pool, uh, and she certainly has that effect on them. Um, 
but yet again, there's the familiarity. It's it's nevertheless the, the the scene. It's not one of ridiculous splendor. I say ridiculous splendor because that's what often happens in medieval fairy stories. That is, when you meet a, a fairy queen, possibly amorous, possibly unclothed, in the wilderness, um, as some people are wont to do, um, what you're likely to find is like incredible wealth, like. She might be in a bed, but the bed has, like, hangings that are richer than anything that any emperor has ever had, and there's jewels and cloth of gold, and it's stunningly amazing. Um, but that's a kind of, like, alien wealth and splendor, right? You know, the, the, the glory from beyond our world. Goldberry is not surrounded by glory beyond our world. It's glory very much of our world, right? Her dress, like young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew. Right, and in the midst of a pool, not normal for a pool with water water lilies to be in the dining room of a house, but other than that, normal, right? Other than that, familiar. Um, and Sharon asked a good question: Do I think the hobbits anticipated for even one second that Tom's house was going to be normal? Hard to guess, but I'm sure that would be sort of a pleasant surprise, right? And that's to me one of the really cool things here is that surprise is kind of both ways, right? Um, this is a surprisingly comfortable and natural and non-scary little house. Remember, houses in the middle of dark and scary forests don't have a good track record in fairy tale tradition, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be made out of candy to be sketchy, right? So, when you, and Tom Bombadil's already done them a good turn, but he's sufficiently weird that you just never know, right, what you're going to find in the middle of the house, in the middle of the woods. And this is not a stretch, by the way. Again, for those of you who read the um, Return of the Shadow with me a few months back, will remember in Tolkien's very first written brainstorming of what to do when he was first, after he had gotten the protagonist out of the Shire and was trying to decide what adventures to give. His very first idea for an adventure is for him to go into the forest and and go to a witch house. There was going to be a witch house in the forest. Now, we don't know what the plan was and how that was going to fit in. I mean, that was just a brainstorming idea that Tolkien threw out and never went any further than that. But that was his first impulse. So you can see that he's already, he, he was thinking in terms of like that kind of Brothers Grimm sort of setting, right? Um, so in that sense... Um, you know, house, you know, apparently cozy looking house in the middle of the forest, not always necessarily a good thing. So, um, uh, now I agree, Lincoln, there's nothing in Tom Bombadil himself that should set off our alarm bells. Nothing evil in Tolkien's world is like Tom Bombadil. I totally agree with that. But still, you know, I mean, they've had a weird day, right? So do they expect to see, you know, this nice, cozy, Hobbit house looking room, I doubt they would expect to see that. And then within that context to see a pool filled with with water lilies, that would be even more uh, surprising. And yeah, okay, this is like a reverse witch house. Absolutely. Uh, and as Oruiran says, I'm getting better at your name, um, uh, Tolkien appears to be inverting the trope there. I, absolutely. That's what kind of what, what, what ends up happening, and that's really neat, isn't it? Um, all right, let's keep going. Enter good guests, she said. 
And as she spoke, they knew that it was her clear voice that they had heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward. Uh, remember I told you last week that my favorite simile in the entire Lord of the Rings was coming up? This is it. This is my favorite simile in the whole book. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. But before they could say anything, she sprang lightly up and over the lily bowls and ran laughing towards them, and as she ran, her gown rustled softly like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. "'Come, dear folk,' she said, taking Frodo by the hand. "'Laugh and be merry. I am Goldberry, daughter of the river.' Then lightly she passed them, and closing the door, she turned her back to it, and with her white arms spread out across it. "'Let us shut out the night,' she said, "'for you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing, for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil.'" Now, first of all, let, let's. I, I'll come back to the simile because it's awesome. But n- thinking of what we were just talking about about the witch house and the inverted witch house, what she does is potentially a little freaky, right? I mean, um, yeah, Julie, exactly. I mean, l- think of what she does. So they've just come inside, and as soon as they've stepped inside, she jumps across, runs around behind them, closes the door behind them, and spreads her arms out over the door between them and the door, right? Now, that could be seen as threatening, right? Like, ah, you're mine. You're, you're in my trap now and there is no escape. That's just what a witch would do if you came to a witch house in the middle of the forest, right? Um, uh, but, of course, notice what she's doing. What does she say? Um, let us shut out the night. She's not shutting them in. She's shutting the night out, Right? Let us shut out the night, for you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing, for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. Right? Um, so, uh, yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> Meng saying so she says, right? Yeah, again, you know, you never can tell with witches, right? Sometimes they look real real appealing at first. So you, we can't rule it out yet. But the fact is, um, if we, for the moment, um, uh, t- take her at her word, and Tony, see, that is an interesting comparison, right? Uh, Tony Mead is thinking about comparing it to when Jonathan Harker arrives at Dracula's castle um, in Chapter 2 of Dracula, right? Um, he has to when as soon as he steps across the threshold, Dracula uh, comes up and takes his baggage and ushers him in, right? But he has to wait for him to cross the threshold first of his own enter freely and of your own will, right? He says, um, "Yeah, absolutely, absolutely." Um, so, yeah, Julia, you're right. It still does have the potential to go terribly wrong at any moment, and I, you know, I'm not sure that that potential is not something that. Um, Tolkien is kind of playing with here. Or rather, it's like a foil in the background. Um, uh, who was it that was talking about this as the inversion of the trope? Um, uh, Aruran, right. Um, we're supposed to remember the trope, right? I, I think the similarity to the trope the fact that she acts kind of like a witch would act if you had gotten to a witch house 
that's supposed to be there, I think. That connection is supposed to be there. But it emphasizes the inversion, right? Um, yeah, he is playing with the fact that people will be familiar with these kinds of fairy tale tropes. Uh, again, if you've grown up on the Brothers Grimm, right, you've got to think that um, a part of you reading this is going to be like, no, Frodo, don't cross the threshold, right? Don't do it. Don't go into the appealing looking house in the middle of the scary forest. Um, I mean, right? I mean, it's a sensible reaction to have. Um, so, yeah, I don't think um, that this is an accident. You know, I don't think that that's, um, you know, that this is us doing wrong by poor Goldberry. Um, and that uncertainty that the hobbits might have, could plausibly have, in a sense, maybe should have, based on their experience. I mean, they've experienced enough weird things for the day. And, and, and what's more, what have the weird things been, right? Here's a nice path, probably leading you to safety and right where you want to go, right? Except, no, it leads you right to the carnivorous willow tree, right? Who's going to cast a spell on you and kill you, Um so, you know, like, oh, and no, this is a second path that led you right that, and then, you know, lined with nice little white stones and, and right up to this nice little house. And it's, you know, it, which looks so appealing and, and nice. Again, you know, little suspicion on their part wouldn't be crazy at all. Goldberry says, I'm not shutting you in. I'm shutting the night out. Now, um, Locking somebody in and locking some and locking the world out is the same action as we learned from Ursula Le Guin in our previous Mythgard Academy course on the dispossessed. Um, but nevertheless, her emphasis is important here, right? Not locking you in, locking out the night. Um, you don't have to be afraid. I understand that you're afraid of the things out there now those things can't get you. And that seems to be what she's signaling. Not, I have trapped you, but I am interposing myself between you and what you're afraid of. Right? What you're afraid of is what is behind you, through the door, outside, where you just were. And now I'm telling you, you have nothing uh, nothing to worry about there. Um, yeah. Um Jonathan, is that more familiar? Yeah, the being welcomed as a guest in a home is a big deal in traditional, many traditional folklores. Um, so, yes, yeah. And that's one of the things, by the way, that makes witches so bad. Uh, I mean, you know, like it, it's like how you know witches are completely like the witch who lives in the in the in the house is completely evil, because once they like lure you in and are nice and friendly and offer you candy, you know then when they like try to kill you, they're not just doing a, an objectively wicked thing like trying to kill you, um, being the evidence of the wicked thing. Um, it's not just that; it's that they have broken the laws of hospitality. They have taken you in as a guest and treated you as a guest and then betrayed you. And that's a seriously big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're skipping the simile, which is really important to get there before we get to the otherwise sort of 
creepy action, right, of, uh, of interposing herself between them and the knight. Um, the simile. You can see why this is my favorite simile in the book, right? I love it because of the way it kind of plays with the whole job of the simile. Talked about this last week, right? What is the point of a simile? The simile is to take something that maybe you can't, you've not experienced or can't picture right away and comparing it to something that's more familiar, something that you can understand and relate to, to give you a, a something to hook onto, right? Something to grab onto imaginatively in trying to wrap your brain around the thing that's being described. That's the whole point of a simile, right? So, so this is just awesome. They began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward. How did they feel? Let's talk about that feeling of surprise and awkwardness, right? Um, what, what, what kind of surprise and awkwardness was it like? Oh, okay. It was just like this. It was like when you knock at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, and the door is instead answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. Oh, yeah! Okay, of course. Like, everyone's had that experience, right? So it's, it's great that we were able to kind of bring that down to a level that we can all understand, right? Um, that's what I love about... Um, uh, that's what I love about this simile, right? Um, it's uh, um, just like elsewhere, we, we come across an explanation that doesn't seem to explain. So here we have a comparison, which doesn't really seem to compare. Um, or rather, the thing, um, the thing that it's comparing it to is even more foreign than the thing that is being described, right? It doesn't help at all. Or rather, it does help, but it helps in a very unexpected way, right? Um, it compares it not with something that we've experienced, but with something maybe that we can imagine, right? Something which is familiar not from our own everyday experience. Again, that's the normal domain of, of similes, as we just saw, right? I mean, we we're just looking at the similes in the description of her clothing, right? What is the green of her dress like? It's as green as young reeds. What is her, the, 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 the silver um, that is shot through the green on her dress, what's that like? Like beads of dew on the reeds, right? Okay, right. So now I, can, I, I have a clearer picture of that because I can picture dew on young reeds, right? So I know just what the colors you're talking about and maybe even something of uh, like the patterns of her dress. Which is why I think, by the way, Goldberry's dress in Lotro is really, really good, uh, based on uh, based on this. Um, but that's not how this works, right? Instead, it's a simile that invites you to imagine something else. Um, they are surprised and awkward, as so we're to imagine the juxtaposition. Of an elf queen, of a modest cottage, right? Um, you just—it's just a cottage door, right? So there's nothing distinguishing about. It. It just looks like looks like a house where a poor person might live. And instead, the door is opened by a, a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. So you have the surprise of substituting poor humble cottager for fair young elf queen, right? So you're blown back 
by the experience of encountering unexpectedly an elf queen in where you expected a cottager. Clad, why is she clad in living flowers? That to me, like it takes the simile to a whole nother level. Like I can't imagine, I don't know what clad in living flowers looks like, right? I mean, it, it makes it, if I could picture knocking on the door of a cottage and having it answered by a fair young elf queen, my ability to imagine that is made even harder by it's it's like it's it's even not less for me to like imagine her clad in living flowers. I'm not sure how to imagine her clad in living flowers. Um so yeah, now I I agree those of you who are saying that like within the context of the story elves are the only kind of comparison that they have like in the hobbit's experience. That's true. But this simile isn't directed at the hobbits. This isn't coming from the hobbits, and it's not directed to hobbits. This is to us, by the narrator. Um, the narrator is speaking to us, trying to l- let us understand more perfectly how Frodo and the other hobbits felt upon suddenly meeting Goldberry. Um... Yeah, Lincoln is saying the thing of the clad and living flowers are those flowers that are still growing. It could mean that. It could mean she has flowers on her that are not dying. Does it mean that they're... Are they rooted? Are they, like, growing and twined around her? Is she clad only in living flowers? That is to say, is her entire dress, like, whatever it is she's dressed in, is there all of her clothing just like made of interwoven flowers? And that's possible, I suppose. Um, and they're alive? Are they rooted in something? Are they? I, again, I don't know. I mean, it could mean a bunch of different things, and I'm not quite sure what it means. Um, uh, yeah, Katriana says it's kind of a we're not in Kansas anymore comparison. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that seems to me the whole point of it, right? And and again, it's why it's my favorite simile because it takes the concept of simile and it like inverts or subverts the whole the whole simile idea, right? Instead of giving you something concrete to attach your imagination to, it just kind of pushes you off the edge, right? If you're sitting there wondering, it just knocks you over uh, into fairy yourself, right? So, uh, and 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 to me, the effect is. The effect is it has on me, the reader. I'm so surprised by the simile, right? Because as soon as as soon as he says, like folk that, right? I'm like, okay, great. Like folk that, please tell me, give me something to latch onto, right? Um I but uh but I don't get it. Instead of the simile that I expect to get, I get something totally different instead. And that's the whole point, right? Uh, Instead of getting something familiar to attach my imagination to, it's something, I get something entirely different. Something that I've never experienced. Possibly something that I haven't imagined. And something that I don't even know how to visualize with the living flowers, right? And that seems to me the... So, So here's my theory with this simile. 
Um, on the one hand, it does convey something, right? It does convey that encounter with the other, that encounter with something, something magical, something on a different order of being, something living on a totally different plane from ourselves, right? And that's like their reaction upon meeting Goldberry. But there's a sense in which this simile works even kind of more deeply, right? Um, by not doing what a simile is supposed to do, it leaves me feeling, well, surprised and awkward, right? My own reaction to the comparison is like the reaction that Frodo has. So the, my very confusion, my very surprise, and not kind of knowing what to do and where to go in my imagination as I'm trying to follow the simile is like Frodo's experience as he meets Goldberry, right? Um, so it's a simile that doesn't inform our imagination. It instead emulates the experience itself. And I think that's really cool. Tony, exactly. What does it end up doing? By taking that method, by, uh, by, um, by kind of getting all sort of meta with his simile there, what is Tolkien doing but describing the indescribable? And that's what you're often doing when you're trying to describe fairy and stuff, right? You know, how do you do that? And this is a pretty cool way of trying to describe the indescribable, because it's not the words, right? Because you aren't going to find words that really nail down. Um, the whole idea, in a sense, right? The whole idea of a simile to describe this experience is crazy, right? You know, the experience of coming face-to-face with Goldberry is like, what? What exactly is it like? What in your life that you have experienced is going to compare to this, right? I mean, you know, just saying, you know, like, you know, like folk that... Fill in the blank. What is it like, right? Nothing that you can be... So again, and so Tony, it's exactly right. It's not describable. There isn't going to be an experience that you've had that's going to nail this, right? So instead, he does a completely different thing. Um, exactly. Uh, exactly, Tony. It's about f- the feeling that the observer has, not what they are seeing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yep. So that's that's uh, that's my theory about this, and that's why this is my favorite simile uh, in the Lord of the Rings because uh, I think it's super cool. It's like the meta similar, like the the unsimile, uh, and uh, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. It's pretty fancy. All right, let's keep going. We may, we may get through three slides tonight, which is pretty exciting. Frodo's enchantment. The hobbits looked at her in wonder. And she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, Frodo, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices. But the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. "'Fair Lady Goldberry,' he said again. "'Now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. "'O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter.' "'Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. "'But Goldberry laughed.' 
"'Welcome,' she said. "'I had not heard that folk of the Shire were so sweet-tongued. "'But I see that you are an elf friend. "'The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it. "'This is a merry meeting. "'Sit now and wait for the master of the house. "'He will not be long. "'He is tending your tired beasts.'" Okay. Yes, Lady Shmabiwak, I agree. Frodo's reaction is a little bit like Gimli's reaction uh, to Galadriel. And I think this is going to be important. When we get to Gimli and Galadriel, sometime probably next spring, uh, keep this passage in mind. Right? I, I, I want to do a comparison, because I think that this is going to be an interesting thing. Of course, you realize that's going to happen a lot, right? As we get further along in the book, there are going to be lots of times when we're, we're going to want to go back and read passages again that we've talked about earlier in the story and put them next to passages that we get later on. That's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it? Um, but, uh, yeah, so, okay. Um, bunches of things. So, Frodo's reaction. So first, let's look at that description, because notice here Tolkien is taking a different tack at trying to describe his feeling, trying to describe his experience, right? Um, He stood as he, another simile, right, stood, how did he stand? As he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices. Frodo, we know, has encountered elves before. We just saw him encounter some elves, but even other than that, we know that he has encountered elves before. Um, so what is this like? It, this is like that, right? So the, 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 the enchantment, and we know the effect that elvish singing has. We've seen the enchantment of the hobbits uh, under the influence of elvish singing already in this story, right? So it's like that. We have an analog, but... The spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous and yet not strange. What are all these things describing? What's the noun being described by all these things? Deeper and nearer, marvelous yet not strange. What is marvelous yet not strange, deeper and nearer? What's the noun which is being described by all those things? Notice this is something it's 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 uh I think really important, but it's easy to forget. Or easy not to notice. Yes, Aragorn exactly. The delight. The delight. Uh the spell was different. It was less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. The delight is what he's describing. Um he says the spell is different. But the spell is creating delight, right? Um, so the spell is there. Several of you are talking about the spell, but uh, but I don't think so, but delight is nearer to those adjectives. Um, the spell was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Delight is still the closest an- antecedent. Well, it's not an antecedent because they're not pronouns. Um, but the nearest noun to all of those things. I think that deeper, nearer, keen, and lofty all are connected with the noun delight. The delight is the spell, right? Um, we're told the spell is different. How is the spell different? Um, the spell is different because the delight is different. So notice what, what it does there, right? There's a similarity, between the spell that is laid on him by his experience of meeting Goldberry and the spell that's laid on him by the experience of fair elven voices, right? 
Both of them generate delight. But it's a different kind of delight. Um, so they're similar, but they're different. Um, exactly, Jonathan. Both of the spells create delight, but the, but the delight is different. And how is the delight different? Less keen and lofty, but deeper and nearer to mortal hearts. So the metaphors that we get there describing the delight. First, notice we get two sort of altitude ones, right? Lofty and deep. Less lofty, more deep is the delight. Um, less keen, but nearer to mortal hearts. Keen is a really interesting word. word. Keen like like a, 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 a wind on the mountainside, right? Keen and lofty. Keen means sharp, cutting, right? Um, elvish singing can cut you to the heart. Um, it is it, it is lofty. It will elevate you, right? Um, but it will cut. Um, this delight is not is not the wounding kind of delight. It's not going to harm you, as people are harmed by elvish, by the delight brought on by elvish. It's still delight, right? But it's keen delight. Um, it can you can you can get hurt by it. Um, we see that in lots of fairy tales, don't we? Um, remember again, Gimli feels that way. I have taken my worst wound in this parting. The delight that Gimli feels in the presence of Galadriel is clearly keen, right? Um, it cuts him. Um, exactly, uh, Tom. Keen like joys that pierce like swords. Absolutely. Um, we'll see a bunch of this. That this uh, this idea of joy or delight that wounds. This is a thing. Um, this may be the first place in the text that we see it, but it won't be the last. Um, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Lofty, keen, deeper, and nearer to mortal heart. So instead of that image of keenness, we get proximity, right? It's deep, and it's near to mortal hearts. So it's marvelous, and yet not strange, which is really neat. Marvelous. It's wonderful. It's a marvel. But it's not strange. And that seems like a contradiction, right? That, I mean, by definition, something that's marvelous is supposed to be strange, right? If it's not unusual, if it's not strange, if it's not alien to your normal experience, it's not marvelous, by definition, right? Um, and yet that's exactly the contradiction that he, again, again that he's describing the delight, Right? It is marvelous that the experience of seeing her, um, the joy that he feels, it is marvelous. The quality of it is, but it's not strange. It's not like an encounter with an alien thing. That's what happens when you meet elves, right? And when you hear fair elven voices. It's beautiful. It's delightful. It may bring joy, but it's definitely you encountering something which is fundamentally other to yourself, right? Goldberry, not so. 
there is something in her, something in the experience of encounter, something in the joy and delight inspired by her, which is a wonder, but it's not strange. It's not other. It is nearer to mortal heart. Um, the quality that he's getting at is really fascinating. And again, this is... I come back to the... the the dryad naiad thing right the 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 spirits of the river right um what does it that mean you know what <clears throat> if you know the countryside right anyone who has ever walked in the woods and come upon a stream and marveled at the beauty of the stream and experienced the kind of delight that like romantic poets were always very fond of, right? The experience of seeing the, the stream and the, the landscape and everything and the kind of delight and, and joy that that may bring up in your spirit when you see that. We do know that. That is something that's familiar to us, right? That is in a sense, like, so we've encountered that. And then when they meet Goldberry, they're meeting what? The source of that, right? What they had always, so what they had always loved about streams, um, uh, now, like, the essence of it becomes clear to them. Now they understand why they had that reaction to streams, if you see what I mean. Because notice, that's exactly Frodo's reaction, Right? Now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. Now he's talking about the songs in Tom Bombadil's songs, right? Now I get Tom Bombadil singing, right? Um, because he has experienced the joy of meeting Goldberry too. But again, that's that a whole idea of now the joy that was hidden is made plain is part of the reaction that he has, right? Now I understand joy that I never really understood before seems to be part of the part of the point um yeah um i want to go on to talk about elf friend status um you guys are talking about that a little bit I come back to that in a minute, though. I, I want to look at his verse. First of all, what do you notice about his verse? Tell me about the poetry. What's what's the first thing you notice about the poetry? What's the first thing you should notice about the poetry? What's the form of the poetry? Is he speaking in Hobbit meter? Rhyming couplets. Yeah. What's the form of the poetry? What's it like? O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, Fair river daughter. Lady Shmebuak, I agree with you. This is Tom Bombadil's meter. O slender as a, O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. It's trochaic. It's Tom's meter. Yeah. Now it's not exactly the same. Trochaic heptameter. Tom Bombadil meter. 
it's not exactly the same form that Tom Bombadil's had. It's distinct. One of the most distinctive elements of Tom Bombadil's singing is not just the trochaic heptameter, but the way he does those spondaic syllables at the beginning, right? Old Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, right? Having those multiple stressed words at the beginning of the line, that's very characteristic of Tom's line, right? Um, as, lo- uh, as well as having a, a the tendency to have a cesura in the middle of the line. Those are the two of the characteristics, uh, sort of the idiosyncrasies of Tom's verse within this metrical structure. Um, what we get, Tony, as you say, the O's give us that beat at the beginning, but it's not the same. Tom has three beats, usually. Old Tom Bombadil, right? Hey, come merry doll. Um, that's how Tom tends to start his lines, with those three syllables. Frodo doesn't do that. He starts it with two. O slender, O reed, O spring, O wind, right? Similar, but it's two. It's not three, right? But that's fine, right? This isn't Tom's verse. This is Frodo's verse. It's in Tom Bombadil meter, right? But it's distinct. And why the O's? The O's tell you very clearly this is all addressed Goldberry. Remember we were talking about Tom's verse? Like, is he is he addressing Goldberry? Is he not addressing Goldberry? With Frodo, there's no question. He's addressing Goldberry, right? That's what the O's uh, indicate. They indicate direct address, right? O slender, or, or you know, he's, or not, not exactly, it's apostrophe um, talking about her, but he, it's, this is clearly directing his speech uh, about and at Goldberry. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom says, even under enchantment, hobbits just can't handle spondies. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, now Matt is pointing out with the O's that uh, it sounds like, um, it sounds like, uh, oh, Elbereth Gilthonio, right? It sounds like the, 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 uh, the elf poetry earlier on. Yes. Is it an influence, or is this... I mean, it, of course, this is the same kind of thing, right? I mean, I would be tempted to say, Matt, that... I'd be tempted to say that the parallel works a little more deeply than that. That is, just as the elves were addressing and singing out to Elbereth, right? O Elbereth Gilthoniel, um, uh And remember, Frodo said that's how you could tell that they're high elves, right? Because they're singing out to Elbereth. So Frodo sings out to Goldberry. Um, And there seems to be a parallel there, that he is addressing her as like, like, here's me using similes, right? Like the high elves were addressing Elbereth in a similar kind of way. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Notice what he does. His his lines are full, the first two lines, similes and metaphors, right? Just like the ones that we've been seeing. O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool. Notice, hey... Didn't we talk about clear? 
clear was an adjective that the elves used to describe Elbereth, and didn't we talk at the time about, like, why clear, in what sense is clear a reasonable adjective to use to describe a woman, right? Um, there's another parallel with the Elbereth poem there, right? Oh, slender? So, what does he praise about her? Her slenderness? Her clarity? And... Oh, read by the living pool. That's just metaphor. It's not even, there's no simile involved at all there. He's just saying she's a reed by the living pool. Fair river daughter. Um, Acknowledging what? Her mom? Right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly, Sharon. Clear as in without blemish. Yes, but again, I can't. I I, I can't. I now can't shake the Elbereth connections there. Um, but again, it's not clear like starlight. It's clear like clear water. Deeper, nearer to mortal hearts. Less keen and lofty. Right. Um, and yes. Yes, Arthur, uh, being in her presence is always like spring and summer. Springtime and summertime and spring again after. It's like the turning of the seasons, right? But only the good ones, right? Only the warm and pleasant ones. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Ah, Jonathan is arguing that clear is one of Tolkien's idiosyncratic words. I've never really thought of that. But that would be interesting. That would be an interesting paper topic, too. Tolkien's, uh, you know, the word clear uh, in Tolkien. That would be that would be interesting. Um, a wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. Notice how the comparisons are getting more abstract. <clears throat> Abs- abst- oops, when AFK there. Um, I, th- I I would say I guess abstract is the way to say it. There, a wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. Like, is he comparing her? What's exactly he comparing her to? Um, this is not an exact, certainly not a comparison of her appearance anymore. Um, what is he like? The experience the you know, her nature, I don't know exactly what he's, um, uh, what he's comparing there. Um, but, um, yeah, a wind, the leaves laughter is one thing. I agree, Oakwig, that wind on the waterfall is evocative, but I don't know of what. I feel like uh, like Alice through the looking glass. It seems to fill my head with ideas, but I'm not quite sure what they are. Um, yeah, now, Sarah Lagarde reminds us very appropriately, we've just heard Leaves' laughter, right? We heard the laughter from the leaves of Old Man Willow as he was laughing in derision uh, at Frodo as Frodo was kicking him, right? Um, presumably this is different. Uh, and interesting that Frodo would use that comparison, right? We'd use that simile or metaphor there. Um, Yeah. It's true that wind on a waterfall would cause mist and rainbows, Tom, so we could have these visual 
associations with that. Though, of course, if there's too much wind, um, if there's too much wind, it's, it would disturb both mist and waterfalls, right? It would prevent a waterfall. Um, I think here... I guess my what I would go with there in that fourth line is that Frodo is trying to kind of convey the spirit of Goldberry. Like, not what she looks like, but what she is like. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'll have to think about that last line more. Notice that the versifying is involuntary on Frodo's part. He is overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. Now, notice, he's not necessarily overcome with... It doesn't say he's overcome with surprise to find himself speaking in verse, though that might well be the case as well. He's find himself. He's overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. Because um, you have to admit it's a bit cheeky. Right? I mean, he's just met Goldberry, and he's composing verses to her. Oh, slender as a willow wand, oh, clearer than clear water. Um, I mean, come on now, right? Like, that's, uh, is that appropriate? You know, it is, when, what's more, not only is she uh, uh, a, a spirit being who is kind of, it's like meeting a fair young elf queen right in the door of a cottage, but... Uh, but she's also married, right? So, you know, I mean, this is, it's, I can say it's a little bold um, uh, on, on, on his part. Um, but, um, yeah, exactly. Gatorana points out he walks into Tom's house after Tom saves them and starts flirting with Tom's wife. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, I, and I think that's the point, um, you know, uh, 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 Julia's chiding Frodo for his lack of propriety, but that's the thing, right? That's exactly what seems to escape him at the at the moment in his reaction to Goldberry is proper behavior, right? How one is supposed to act. Um, he would never think of addressing lines like that to a woman he just met, right? Uh, much less to a woman that he has reason to think is great and powerful and marvelous and way, way beyond him, right? Much less than who is somebody else's wife, right? But it's just, it's a spontaneous reaction to experiencing her presence. And she laughs, right? But Goldberry laughed. She's not offended, right? She doesn't take it amiss. For him, so it seems that for him to leave behind what his you know, sort of what his culture, what his society tells him is normal is, uh, is okay, actually, for him. Um, it's a, that's, that's acceptable, certainly acceptable, um, uh, uh, by her, uh, to her is acceptable. Um, yeah, and, uh, the, several of you are thinking about the courtly love tradition, and it is, to, you know, as Tom Tom says, Frodo's bursting into song like this at the beauty of the master's wife is right out of medieval romance. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Lots of romances start that way. Um, guy who finds, you know, uh, woman like 
locked in the house, right? Uh, the, the the and and uh, is struck, smitten by her beauty, and and immediately composes lines of of uh, uh, reverence describing his delight. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of medieval romances work like that. And uh, 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 Jonas Glass is thinking about uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight as uh, uh, thinking about Matt's comparison. And of course, that's the whole business with uh, Lady Bursalac, uh, you know, the, the, the master's wife, right, uh, who is herself fairly cheeky uh, in coming to Sir Gowan's bed. Um, so, you know, we get, we, get, we get that issue going on there. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's um, all there in the background, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you could say, like, that's one of the reasons Frodo's embarrassed, right? Because he's like, oh, no, that's not this kind of wrong story, right? This is not how this is supposed to go, right? But here, it's fine. It's fine. There are no consequences. Um, there are often consequences to that kind of thing. There's no consequences here. This is um, the lack of propriety, the way, the way in which... His reaction to Goldberry is entirely outside the normal proprieties, is part of the experience. And Goldberry recognizes that. Goldberry not only recognizes it, she praises him for it, right? Um, I had not heard that folk of the Shire were so sweet-tongued. She laughs and says, welcome. Why? Why is her response to this so positive? This is what she... They, he is doing what she invited them to do. Right? Why is why is he why is he burst into meter? Why is he burst into this meter and singing a song? He is under an enchantment, right? They, what did they just sing? Both of them, Goldberry and Tom, at the end of chapter six, right? Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together, right? Let us sing together, they both agreed. Um, the last line of his song and the first line of hers, and both of them end with let us sing together. And what's the first thing he does? He sings with them, right? The fun is officially begun. Uh, Frodo is entering into the fun, right? He is swept away into the fun. That's why I call it an enchantment, not only the reference to spells, right? But we can see he's, he's immediately caught up in the fun in a way that he himself didn't plan or expect, Right? And that's clearly, in doing this, not only is he not acting, he's, he's, it's not just that he's not acting inappropriately, this is perfectly, uniquely appropriate. Not only to be merry and to sing, and to be merry and to sing in iambic, in a trochaic heptameter, but for him to sing like this, right? He says, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. Now I can sing like Tom Bombadil, because I get Tom Bombadil's joy. Tom Bombadil has a joyful experience of meeting Goldberry, and so do I. And yeah, they're married, and I'm not married to her, but that's totally okay, right? Because it's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, and again, Lincoln is reminded of the uh, totally non-sexual reverence that Gimli will later experience for Galadriel. Yes, I agree, Lincoln. This is another good moment, another good point to be recalling when we get to Gimli and Galadriel. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there is something endearing, Matt, I agree, with Frodo's embarrassment um, as he is, uh, as he kind of 
hears what he's doing and realizes what he has just said, right? Um, he is swept away into this enchantment, but he's not blinded by it, right? He, he, he's still aware of himself enough to be embarrassed and, uh, and, and stumbling around. Um, yeah, yeah. And yes, Katriana, I agree. This, you almost do get the sense that this is how one is supposed to greet Goldberry. I agree. This is, this is totally appropriate. Again, let us sing together. That's what he's doing, right? He is following the invitation. Um, it would almost, there's a sense in which it would almost be inappropriate for him not to have done this, right? It would be like refusing the invitation that he's been given. Um, okay. Um, last point, the elf friend. I see that you are an elf friend, right? Um, she can discern his elf friendliness, Right, this is the first indicator that we have that being an elf friend means something other than like you can have friends who are elves without being an elf friend. Right, Gildor has named him an elf friend. That sounded like it was kind of a big deal, but we don't have much. We didn't get much of an indication of what that meant at the time. This is our first indicator. Uh, that it has some kind of a, that it is some sort of a, that Frodo has been changed. When he is named an elf friend by Gildor, he has been changed by that experience. And it's a change that is perceptible for those who have eyes to see that kind of thing. How can she discern? How are elf friends different from others? She says, right? The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it. So you can tell. That's how you can tell an elf friend. Apparently, it's how Goldberry can tell an elf friend. The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice. And both of those things are really interesting. The light of the eyes of elves, that's a very character, very elvish characteristic. And fair elf voices, Frodo was just recalling, right? The lofty and keen delight brought about by uh, uh, fair elf, fair elven voices. So, um, what we seem to see here, what she seemed to imply, is that when you are an elf friend, when you have been made an elf, when you've been named an elf friend, you become elvish, right? Some you, there, 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 there is something el- There's something about him, an elvish air, right? Who's going to say that? There's something strange about you, Frodo. An elvish. There's there's an elvish air. Remember who who it's not just Goldberry that can see it, right? Anybody remember another quiz? Who says that? Um, yeah, Lincoln, exact. Faramir, Faramir is going to say that. Of course, Faramir uh, can uh, can notice that he's an elf friend as well, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Matthew Roder says maybe it's in the odor, right? He smells like elves, right? Yeah, who knows? Maybe he does smell like elves. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, Faramir is going to be able to... Pres- and so remember Goldberry, right? He's observing the same thing. There is an elvish air about him that's observable. So when, El- when the elves sort of adopt Frodo as a friend, right... He is given a kind of an elvish stamp. An elvish enchantment is placed upon it. He's he's he th- has an elvish air, 
right? His eyes are like elf eyes. His voice is like an elf voice. And as several of you are uh, interested in the use of the word ring, the ring in your voice tells it, no, I don't think we should be thinking about the ring of power here. Um, do I think that's an accident? Yeah, actually, I kind of do. I don't think that has anything to do with the ring of power. Um, uh, there is a kind of irony there, right? That uh, the the sort of the elvish tone of his, you know, that 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 like echo of elvishness in his voice uh, is is used as a ring. But to me, Lincoln says sometimes a ring is just a ring. Yeah, I would say Lincoln sometimes a ring is a bell rather than a ring on your finger. How? of any kind, right? Um, and I'm remembering now the ring-a-ding-dillo, right? Um, that seems to me the kind of ring that she's talking about, not a ring that you wear on your finger. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Good. Um, all right. Sit now and wait for the master of the house. He will not be long, but apparently he's going to be another week because we're out of time. Uh, So next week we will get to the discussion of Tom Bombadil and we'll look at Tolkien's comments on that passage. So I didn't quite get all that far, but hey, we got, we got what, six, maybe even seven paragraphs into the chapter. So that's pretty good. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Cool. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good night's work. Um, so I'm going to say goodbye to folks on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. And so next week, same time, we'll be back for, uh, uh, discussion of who is Tom Bombadil answering the loaded question. Who is Tom Bombadil, uh, next week. Um, so very good. We'll do that. Um, yeah, I was happy spending time with Goldberry too. That was, that was definitely enough for, uh, uh, for a class discussion tonight. Um, I'm going to say goodnight to the Twitter people. Thanks for joining me. All right. And it is field trip time. Woohoo! Field trip time! <laughs> okay. Um, They're going to go someplace completely new tonight, aren't they? That's right. We're going, we're going to, we're going... In, 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 well, at least the, the first place we're going to is not so new. So, not, no, so new. not so new. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to go back to uh, our our just as I've been going through the books paragraph by paragraph. Uh, you know, I want to go through the Lotro world sort of uh, you know zone by zone uh, and be looking again at sort of the whole sub creation and adaptation of uh, Tolkien's world and Tolkien stories that they're doing. So. We've been we've been around almost all of the even dim region. Um, I want to go back to even dim tonight and go to the one place we haven't been, which is the northern bit. <clears throat> so I want to uh, we're going to meet up at Tinadir again because it's just an easy place for lots of people to get to. I want to go to Tinadir again, and then from there we'll head up towards Ostfarad and head north up into Forakel. So uh, that'll be uh, that'll be fun. So that's where we're going to head now. So if you have a direct port to Tinadir or something, you can do that. I'm just going to go take a horse, I think, from the stable master, and. Um, Anyone who needs a fellowship, we have Dime the Real and myself, Maven, up here on the stage, so you can 
gather around one or the other yeah. of us, and we will fellow and port you. And I'm just going to go grab a horse. Don't be shy. Don't be shy, ladies and gentlemen. Step right All up. All right. Sarah, it says you're already in a fellowship. You need to drop fellowship, and then I can do it. Okay. Let's see. JJ, good question. Uh, are there any particular mobs we don't want to kill? Um. Well, when we get up north... We might want to. Um, we might want to just kind of look about us and see what mobs are there. Um, but we don't need to linger around them long, and certainly we're going to have probably low-level folks, <clears throat> so we don't want um, to allow the mobs to come in and take them out. But. But I always like to look at what um, what mobs, of course, using game terminology there, you know, um, what of the, you know, the wandering bad guys they put in each region, because that itself is always an interesting part of the story too, right? Um, which which monsters do you meet roaming around the countryside, and why, and how is that appropriate to a particular area? You know, that is to me always uh, an interesting question when you come to a particular region and a lot of the story of the area and the way that the story fits in to the overall story of middle earth is, uh, uh, is, is often told or sort of hinted at in the choice of whom you meet wandering ram randomly around the countryside. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Yes, Tony, I agree that I like that we're spending time with the Dunedain of the North since we get so little of them in the actual text. Completely agree. There are so many things that they get the opportunity to, um, or sort of they take the opportunity in the game uh, to really kind of flesh out things that we either just see from a distance or, or, or only are just kind of told about and never really get to interact with. And yes, the, the, the Dunedain of the North, we're told that they are protecting the Shire, we're told that they protect the Breelands, we're told that they're all sort of around through the North. We don't know all of exactly what they're doing, we don't know who most of them are, we only really ever get, you know, what, one other of them by name. No, we get other uh, others by name after they die. Okay. Posthumously, they get names um, in the funeral elegy that's sung after the Battle of Pelennor Field. But, um, but still, we, we um, uh, most of them, we don't know, and we don't, uh, uh, we never learn their names or see what they're doing. So it's really fun. Uh, I think to uh, getting to know the Rangers of the North um, was uh, one of the things that I really like most about uh, Volume One of the Epic Quest Line and that whole all these areas. Um, so, Maven, are you still in the Scholars Hall? No, we're here collecting folks. Okay, everybody's here. 
Alright. In that case, let us... Let us mount up and head north. Um, yeah, Tarlonio complains that they, the game makes us love all of the rangers, and then uh, there's a fairly high casualty rate among them. Yeah, well, but isn't that kind of amazing storytelling, right? <clears throat> the Battle of Pelennor Field should hit you that hard. Um, but uh, it's easy to kind of, you know, the, the funeral song in uh, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring, the role that it <clears throat> that it plays is to personalize, right? To 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 give names and to tell us something of those who, um, you know, of those who who died in uh, uh, in the Battle of Pelennor Field, rather than just being told that lots of people died. You know, we get to hear their names and and get a, a little glimpse of who they were and and why they matter. Um, it gives the entire thing this really different perspective when all of those names we have met in the game. I haven't gotten there in the epic. I haven't gotten to the Battle of Pelennor Field yet, but of course I've already come to parts in the epic quest line where we've met, you know, many many of the. Um, of the characters that uh, are just names in a list otherwise uh, in um, The Return of the King, which is really, really cool. Anyway, okay. Um, So I'm pausing here because this is obviously an important place. We got past this spot before last time, or time before last, when we were heading out to Fornost. Um, But I think this is kind of an interesting point, thinking about Even Dim and the Even Dim region. Um, So, of course, as we've seen, this place was mostly... Uh, like uh, you know, uh, country estates and sort of summer homes, right? Of the of the wealthy and powerful, houses and families of uh, of Arnor, right? Of of ancient Arnor that was. Um, we can see now as we're getting further inland that these are probably like less influential families, though the compounds are sort of larger once you know than than the ones like this one out here on the. Uh, um, still on the hills overlooking the lake, the lake being just there over the over those hills from where we are right here. So this is a crossroads. If we look at the map, we see we're right at the crossroads. We've got the the main road that comes down to the King's Bridge, and from there down to Enuminous, and also down to points south through the Shire. Though, of course, the Shire wasn't a very big thing at the time in Arnor. Um, so it heads out to Tinadir, to the King's House, off to Fornost, which at the time, when so when we're thinking in the Evendim region, we're still thinking primarily of Arnor as was, right? The old Arnor, the original kingdom in the during the reign of the first eight kings. That's really kind of, I think, where our attention needs to be focused there. When we go out into the North Downs, and we'll come back to, you know, we, we, we visited the North Downs to see Fornost, um, we will come back to the North Downs later on, and when we get to the North Downs, what we um, what we're already thinking of most is the later period of Arnor, right? The, 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 the time after the civil wars have begun, when the northern kingdom is split into the three different sub-kingdoms of Arthodyne and Rudaur and Cardolan, um, and the relics of those struggles and everything, that's off, that's off over there. But over here, in the Evendim region, it's 
this is the center of the old kingdom, which has already gone into collapse by the time um, the civil wars come around. So, okay, so so again, crossroads. This is the crossroad, that, so the, the, the road that goes down through the south, down along the Brandywine River, right, is basically what, the, you know, it's, it's, it's the road that's following the Brandywine, which was the major river that comes out that connects Lake Evendim to the sea, right? So that's what that southern road is. Um, again, half of it goes down towards the sea along the Brandywine, or the Baranduin, excuse me, uh, and the other ha- the other side, of course, goes to Anuminus itself. Then we've got this branch that goes out to Tinity, or the other that goes out to Fornos, which again would be like a frontier fortress, and then up north to Ostferod and further on into Forakel. And we don't really, as far as we can see in Tolkien's writing, there isn't really any connection between um, those, the people, you know, the 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 Lossoth, which live up in the in the far north in Forakel. Um, not much um, interaction between them and the Dunedain, the, the Numenorean kingdom of Arnor. Um, but nevertheless, there's a, there's a road that heads up in that direction. So, this is an important crossroads. Um, and what do we get here at the crossroads? We don't get the king, right? King's over the hill. Oh, look, we can just see him. We can just see the top of his head and the top of his scepter there, right? Um, the king, the monolithic, the, you know, the, the, the enormous colossal statue of the king is what you see when you come up the river, from the sea, right? But if you're just coming into the middle of the kingdom, you get this, uh, these warrior statues, right? Symbolizing what? The vigilance of Arnor facing north, south, east, and west, right? Uh, these look like guards, standing guard, right? Facing in all four directions. Um, and that's kind of interesting to me in the context of the old kingdom of Arnor that we've seen so far, right? Um, which has been distinctly non-military uh, in its character. We have seen generally not fortresses, but pleasure villas, right? Um, even Enuminous itself has walls and some defensive structures, but it's not primarily a a walled city. It's not primarily for defense. It's, you know, the great, beautiful city by the lake. Um, But we do have this sense of vigilance uh, here in the middle. Um, Julia's speculating maybe this is a late Arnorian construction. I'm not sure. I wouldn't put it later than the Civil Wars um, because I don't think once we get to the Civil Wars, this spot is no longer going to be a central crossroads. Um, the shift comes out, thinking of the North Downs now, right? Fornost is the top. This road, of course, coming down from Fornost is the Greenway, right? Um, and so uh, coming down to Bree at the junction of the, you know, at the crossroads of the Greenway going north-south here and the old Dwarf Road east and west, right? Um Bree is going to be much closer. This is going to be the epicenter of the, uh, you know, this this whole area, um, the Weather Hills and uh, uh, and the Breelands and the Barrow Downs. Um, this is going to be the frontier uh, of, you know, one of the one of the primary frontiers of the Civil War eras, right? Um, 
So even when we go back to the North Downs, right, even up here, this is mostly Arthodyne, right? But over here in even dim is not much of anything. Um, this really starts, Enuminous is going to get abandoned um, before Fornost falls. I mean, so this whole place is going to, you know, the, this is, even dim is like this, again, this is old Arnor. And, and there's a, I don't know, there's a, uh, um, there's a sense that, and again, I really like this sense. There's, there's a sense in the way they've constructed even dim. Uh, the even dim region that I really like. There's a kind of, uh, uh, well, it's, it's an exaggeration to call it a sort of Garden of Eden effect, but uh, do you see what I mean by that? That is this sense of paradise lost, right? Um, what we see around us here mostly is um, the evidence of a peaceful kingdom when which, which you know, and it's not just the kingdom that's gone away, but but even the peace in which this realm was established has, you know, become a thing of the past. And what's it full of instead? Again, what's the prim primary storyline of this region? Um, the primary plot of Evendim, as we've seen it, is Tomb Raiders, right? Um, brigands who have come in and are just ransacking um, these relics, you know, these ruins for relics and things that they can put to their own probably disreputable uses, right? Um to try to turn them into mere commodities and or even weapons. Um, and that's like the 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 sad heritage, the sort of the fall, right? Um, you know, the sort of the post-fall. This is like post-apocalyptic, uh, you know, paradise here uh, in Evendim. Um, and the Dunedain who are struggling to preserve the memory. Um, why? Yeah, because it has to do with their history. But again, I love how it fits into um, the overall historical point, right? Like the Dunedain, it's not just about the Historical Preservation Society, right? Um, they're not interested in Arnor just as historians. They're interested in it because it is the living memory of the peace that they have lost, Right. Um, again, it's not just the origins of Arnor. This is like the kingdom that they want to see reestablished. In a sense, it would be even cooler to see Arnor reestablished, to see Anuminous rebuilt, than it is to see the White Tree restored. Uh, I mean, that's cool, right? Uh, to see the king return to Gondor and the White Tree flowering again, and that's awesome. But uh, to see Anuminous restored? And therefore, like, not just the ancient kingdom, but the, 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 the old peace of the realm, to see that come back, man, that's the real dream of the Dunedain, right? Um, to have a time, to look forward to a time when they can just sit next to campfires and not worry about the things that they're supposed to be looking at, right? To be sitting next to campfires without having to send adventurers off to solve problems. That's the life that they are kind of dreaming about, right? And that seems to be, it's like what Evendim stands for. That's what, that's what we see here in Evendim. So anyway, but here in the center, we do have this. So I, I think this has to be old Arnor. Um, this statue. Because, again, there's no point in building... This wouldn't have been a major crossroads in post-Civil War Arnor. Um, so I think it's interesting that we see there's... 
in the midst of peace, we do have this idea, you know, the, 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 the might of, of the Dunedain is not forgotten, right? Um, and, uh, I, um, uh, I, 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 I don't, th- and that doesn't seem to me at all inappropriate, right? That at the heart of their peaceful realm is still this idea of vigilance, right? Armed vigilance. Um, they don't want to be just like completely vulnerable. There's like a memory at the at the heart of, you know, this old realm that like the the strength, the armed strength of Numenor is what enabled this kingdom. You know that 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 certainly seems. Uh, an appropriate kind of thing for them to to put at the middle of this here. Um, so I like that. I think that's cool. Anyway, let's head up to uh, let's head up to Osferod. So let's go up the northern road here, and hopefully not meet a roving threat. Yeah, Tony Mead was just asking who uh, Aragorn was going to repopulate Arnor with, uh, since there's so few people. Uh, Tarlonio suggesting a post-war baby boom, which is of course always possible, but of course, even for that, you got to have somebody, right? Um, and uh, I don't know, but again, remember, even Gondor itself, the history of Gondor and of Arnor, presumably, it was never like just made up of Numenorians who came in. Gondor, of course, is full of people who um, were not of Numenorian extraction, right? Um, you know, the native mountain folk of that area um, who uh, who accepted the Numenorians when the Numenorians came in um, and uh, sort of took the Numenorians as rulers uh, and you know, mingled with them and everything, and they they became one people, clearly, as time went on down in Numenor. Presumably the same thing happened up here in Arnor. Um, And that would be the... um, uh, I I would assume this, you know, so does that suggest there are people who still live up here? Does it suggest that the Dúnedain, you know, the remnants of the old kingdom, the old North Kingdom, were more numerous than, you know, than Butterbur knew of? Possibly. How many rangers are there? Um... There might be, there might end up being quite a few. Not all of them, you know, having the blood of Numenor running almost true in them. But um, okay, sorry, I've paused here because we've just gotten to the outskirts of Osferat, and what's the first thing we notice? Defenses. Right. This is a much more military installment than we've generally seen. So look, and notice how you've got uh, walls connecting up to the side of that uh, of that cliff, right? With what looks like it would be a defensible gate. I mean, of course, you got some of them knocked in, and then a corner tower over here, right? And then a little sort of curtain wall extending out here, making this would have been like a kind of courtyard in here. Um, so, uh, so, yes, it looks like this looks definitely more fortified than the... Uh, um, than most of what we saw down in the south. Once we come indoors, we see it's still, it's still not, this is not a fortress, this isn't like Fornost. Um, 
you know, defense within defense. You know, it's not a, we don't get a real sort of concentric castle design going on here. And once we're in here, the buildings are very similar, right? Same Numenorian scenes. Yep, same Numenorian scenes um, depicted on those panels, which we so triumphantly deciphered um, in an earlier class, um, an earlier field trip. Okay, I'm just looking around at the buildings. Same kind of dome structure. We can see it's clearly of the same, you know, this is definitely of the same time. Got that same sort of tower with the four points sticking up that we see all around in, in Illuminous. <clears throat> so clearly the architecture here would seem to be contemporary. Um, <clears throat> it's built onto the hillside here. But see, notice here you would expect not just pillars on either side. You'd expect a gate here. Right? It would make sense to have like an inner ward in here where you could have like the inner defenses. And then look at this, another hill, right? Um, where you could defend that. Now, obviously, you still could defend these stairs, but it's not built for defense, even this on the inside. So we do see more evidence of defenses, I think, on the outside of Ostferod, which makes sense, as Ostferod is explicitly the northern frontier spot, right? This is the northernmost, um, you know, right along the edge, right along this sort of pass through the, through the, 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 the mountains, right? The steep hills up here. Um, it's the pass that leads up into Forakel. And so you would want to guard that, right? Not knowing who lives up there and uh, who might decide to come down and try to attack. You know, it would be prudent to have a fortified spot. But again, even this is not set up like a fortress. Um, once an enemy got through the outer wall, it wouldn't be... I mean, you could still set up defenses, but again, it's not set up with a, a clear... Now, here's... As we go down towards the north, what do we get? Oh, it's hard. There's lots of rubble here, right? Which looks like it could have been... This is a pretty narrow gap and pretty steep going uphill, so this would have been easy to defend... It's easy to imagine that these... We don't have any clear walls, but again, it's just in a narrow gap here. It's pretty easy to imagine that those... That rubble on either side could have been gates. You know, could have been um, gates or gatehouses that would have led in. We've got... Yeah, see, that's a wall over here, right? Yeah. Yeah, walls over here. To guard that approach to the city. This is the courtyard we were just in. Um, through between those pillars and then with the stairs up. And as you can see, there's no need to defend that because that's on a nice steep slope. Um, so we don't get... So the approach from the path here doesn't say paranoia to me. Doesn't say, like known source of barbarian invasion that we must actively protect against. I think, you know, we have some evidence of fortifications on this side, both in that gap, uh, presumably, again, I'm going to presume that's what that rubble is, and the wall up here, so that the approaches as we come at this place from here, um, you can see it's, it would be, it would be pretty hard uh, to take it. And it's uh, very well defended on either side from, uh, uh, with the cliffs and stuff, so... Um, so that's easy enough. Anyway, yeah, okay. So, um, so again, what... 
as uh, as they've constructed this, what does the story of Ostfarad appear to be, based on the evidence we can see? Northern fortification to defend the northern frontier of Anuminus, you know, of uh, of of old Arnor here, um, but not one that seems based upon active. Uh, an active military threat, right? This is not like an armed frontier. Um, protected, but not paranoid, right? Not actively anticipating attack. And who we still get out here? We got, oh yeah, so, still getting some tomb robbers out here. Tomb robbers. Bears, as I recall, right? We get bears around here. So, right, so what are the threats in this region? What's the story of this region? The tomb robbers again, right? The threats again, you know, those uh, um, more sort of baser men who have forgotten. These tomb robbers, of course, right? These people who live in this region and who are plundering the tombs are quite likely, that, I mean, what could be more likely than that they are descendants of the people who lived here, right? They could well be. But it's like these are the the people that have forgotten the king, right? The people that have forgotten the traditions of this place, that have no sense, you know, they're, they're, they are as tomb raiders, right? They are the people who don't have any sense of the history, who don't care about the history and have forgotten perhaps even themselves uh, and their own traditions uh, and instead are just looking thinking about their own present lives, right? Their own survival their own betterment, their own wealth right? We want to rob uh, and repurpose the ancient relics of Arnor, because the this whole concept of a, a peaceful kingdom that um, that we um, uh, that we once were a part of, and 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 you know which we could make thrive, we're not gonna we don't care about that, right? Aha! And here is the first line of defense, right at the boundary, right? There you go. So this would be the boundary marker. <laughs> it's kind of easy to go around this, but we have cliffs over here, so that's okay. Okay, right, yeah, we have cliffs on there. Okay, here we go. Okay, so it is a good, a good spot. So this would seem to mark the extreme northern boundary of, uh, of Old Arnor, right? There you go. Okay, cool. Um, so, by the way, in the question, with whom is Aragorn going to populate Anuminus, right, when he rebuilds it? Again, the, to- the whole tomb robber thing that they do here in Lotra, it's not in the books, right? So, you know, that's that's their extrapolation, though. Again, I find it a really fascinating story extrapolation uh, and a really neat way of envisioning this area. But... Um, uh, but there's more, right? Uh, when we think forward, it's like they have um, uh, preemptively. Let's see who is uh, um, who is asking about that. Um, Tony, Tony is asking about that. Um, repopulating Arnor. I would bet. That in the game world, it's going to be the the Tomb Robbers. I bet that Aragorn is going to return, and he's going to call everybody to their old allegiance. Um, he's going to offer them, 
you know, land in a sea and say, like, you know, now I, the king, have returned and, you know, this realm will be restored and you will be given the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to, to stop being, you know, ruffians and brigands in the wilderness and, and you know, stop robbing the relics and, uh, you know, uh, stealing relics from, uh, from the tombs and uh, ruins of Arnor and instead help to rebuild it and you will be given land and protection and um i uh uh exactly tony they haven't heard of the king yet but i think um they um they're gonna hear of the king and i think that when aragorn returns to evendim i would not imagine aragorn leading the dunedain in a last final you know, war of annihilation against the brigands, right? He's finally going to put paid to the brigands once and for all and drive them all out or kill them. Um, I think he's going to come and give them a choice. I think he's going to, you know, and some of them will, will come along and, and, and reform and uh, some of them will not. Right. Um, uh, that's what I imagine is probably, uh, is probably what's going to happen. Uh, uh, and that's how I would see it playing out within the game world that they've built. And that seems to me, Hey, I can see that. That seems fine. Um, cool. Well, hey, I've been talking a lot on this field trip, um, but that's okay. I think actually this right at the boundaries, I find myself like I was going to just ride through, but we got to this wall. We got to this boundary, and I'm like, I can't just waltz past this boundary. And anyway, I've already talked a lot today, and it's getting late. I've been keeping you guys really late uh, uh, over the last few weeks, and I'm trying to reform and uh, uh, and be be more uh, diligent in letting people go to sleep. So, so let's stop the field trip here. Next time we will uh, we'll continue on. So next time we'll 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 travel straight to Osferod and then we'll head north from there um, to uh, uh, up into. We'll come back through here and this time carry on galloping uh, and go up into Forakhel. Um So uh, yeah, cool. All right. Uh, so that's, I think, the uh, the the plan that we're going to have. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. This was a really fun field trip thinking about uh, Arnor and the, 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 the history of Arnor and the future of Arnor, even, as it's uh, uh, implied by the game and, and the way that they've picked up sort of the hints uh, from... Uh, uh, from the book, yep, dress warmly next week. We'll be heading up into the snow. Uh, so yeah, do make sure you come prepared for that. Um, thanks a lot, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week for more Tom and Goldberry, and then exploration into the wild north. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.